from 11FS, I'm David Breer and this is Fintech Insider News. On today's show, the FCA opens up the gates for Cohort 3 and reveals Cohort 2 from their sandbox. Being the Uber of banking may no longer be what you aspire to. And what the hell is Zelle? All this and more coming up on Fintech Insider News. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Fintech Insider News, coming to you this week from the 11FS office at our wonderful home in WeWork London. I'm David Breer and back pretty much from the dead after a couple of weeks out with what turned out to be pneumonia, which if anybody's in any doubt, pretty much sucks. Just saying, I'm sure nobody optional sort of into that one to do it, but yeah, not fun, I can tell you. Today, we are a little bit on the thin side of for the regulars, so we've got some of the irregulars with us this week. You'll have to welcome my 11FS colleague, Aidan Davies. Say hey, Aidan, how's it going? Hello, and I'm certainly not thin. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us this week, we have our favourite neighbour, Sarah Reddorf-Kachansky, the only <laughs> way I ever really remember how to do that. Thank you very much for joining us from Business Insider. How's it going, Sarah? It's good. Yeah, it feels like it's ages since I've been here. Yeah, A whole two days. It is, yeah. And joining you, we have Liz Girl Interrupted Lumley uh, of All Round. I don't have schizophrenia, but I am often mistaken for Winona Ryder. It's all the time. (laughs) I would never interrupt you, I have to say. I'm far too scared to do that. But um, welcome back, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Before we get into that, we have a bit of an announcement, which you may have seen out there in the sort of various different social uh, media lands. Uh, And I'm super duper excited about this one that we're going to be doing Fintech Insider Live over in Money 2020 Copenhagen. So if you're a bit of a fan of what we're doing, uh, or you just want to hang out with the guys, or let's be honest with you, if you just want to get your hands on some lovely, lovely Fintech Insider swag, then please come along to that and check us out. It's going to be really good fun. Anyways, it's been a pretty big week, so let's get on with the news. First up, we have a pretty interesting one here from the FCA. So, Aidan, we've got the Financial Conduct Authority provides an update on the sandbox. What's going on here? Yeah, press release just gone live on this. Yes, the Financial Conduct Authority, the regulators in the UK have announced the second cohort of their sandbox companies. Uh, the sandbox is a innovative playground for businesses to test uh, new products and services in a, in a live environment without... Uh, as much regulatory oversight as maybe the, the rest of the market has to deal with. Uh, yeah, and they've also announced they're opening the application process for Cohort 3, which if you want to apply to be Sandbox Company, uh, get in there before the 31st of July. Uh, just coming back to the 24 companies that have been announced then, uh, one that stood out for me was the Experian are in there, small, nimble yeah. startup that they are. Uh, <laughs> they're testing a, a mortgage eligibility tool. So uh, when customers are looking to buy a house, you can uh, basically say, okay, well, can I borrow against this house with my mortgage lender's terms, which sounds really interesting. Uh, another one that caught my eye, which I think you may know, Liz, is uh, Insurer Thing. Yep, Startup Bootcamp um, InsureTech alumni. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was actually quite a lot of InsureTech companies in this cohort, wasn't there? Which is, again, there was like a lot of blockchain-y stuff happening. Um, but yeah, the InsureTech stuff is definitely kind of rising there. It was interesting, actually, The um, so Paul Worthington from the FCA sent us a couple of stats about the cohort application, and they had 77 applications in for the 24 slots that they actually kicked off. So, you know, they're being pretty tight on who they're letting in and, you know, why, I guess. Well, you you have to keep in mind, these are all going to be consumer-facing startups, um, which is, you know, a fraction of the fintech universe. I find it interesting. I'm trying to – they did not publish who got in the first cohort originally, um, and the, one of the reasons why is 
the first iteration of this fintech uh, of the regulatory sandbox, they had a bit of an issue with because many of the startups in the cohort um, needed to find a bank partner to test with. And it was up to them to go find a bank partner. And many of the banks, you know, kind of looked and said, why would we volunteer to show, you know, the regulator what we're doing, what's in it for us. Um, and I think rightly, they didn't sort of publish originally who was in the original cohort, because if these startups couldn't find a bank to test with, then they couldn't be in the sandbox. And that kind of would look, make them look bad when it wasn't really even their fault. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting that they are publishing who's in it this year. Um, uh, so maybe they sort of uh, fixed the parameters of how you could test the product. Um, I just wanted to pick up on what Aiden said about Experian. I mean, I think this is obvious that a, a, a established player would use this to test something that I think this is inevitable that someone like Experian would probably use this. Well, I mean, when they when they did finally release who had gone through that first cohort or like eight of the 24 that they did finally announce, HSBC was one of those as well. Yeah. So it kind of, the, the, the what was interesting to me is that Experian was the only big name I recognized in here. There are some great names outside of that, just like Nuggets is my personal favorite, just on terms of, you know, whilst we're on, on naming conventions. But I think the other interesting thing from my perspective was the number of advice type, uh, you know, on, on different elements of, of financial services. But obviously that plays so well into what the FCA is trying to do with getting more advice out there. It, it's a logical, a logical step. Um, I guess also the fact that it's bigger. It was 24 last time, it's 31 this time. How many more will we get? They've also opened up applications for cohort three. So it's obviously working or something's working, whatever it is, the FCA is pleased with it. It's interesting that there is no, because last time, like you say, we had HSBC and we had Lloyd's in there as well, didn't we, with a, a sort of future branch thing. It's interesting that we don't have any banks in there this time. You know, maybe there's something in here that's being maybe fueled by a bank in some, some guises, I guess. But um, yeah, interesting absence potentially. I'd be interested to hear from the banks what they got out of it. Not then, not usually the most open of companies <coughs> talking about that. But yeah, what did they learn from testing the, the, an what, environment that they can't do? Yeah, in well, their that was it. The, the banks that I spoke to that chose not to be part of this said, "We can just do this ourselves." You know, why do we? Why are we going to go into the the FCA regulatory sandbox when we can do this in house? Well, I, I won't say which one, but it's one out of two, so you can kind of <laughs> flip, flip a coin and guess. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the, the argument for this particular bank, nearly said the name again, I'm going to be really careful, um, it was that basically it was a permission to really push the internal parties to, you know, think and act differently. So, you know, whereas a lot of the, the sort of internal resistance to the types of change that they were looking to do would have kind of almost got in the way of the, the sort of movement, then, you know, this allowed them the, you know, internal permissions to uh, really sort of go out there and push the boundaries but super interesting really looking forward to seeing what comes next on this one and uh, given that the applications for uh, cohort three are open then uh, get your applications together ladies and gentlemen moving on uh, we have a story on reuters this is amazon lent one billion dollars there's uh, definitely kind of a dr evil vibe to that one I thought um, that's where you were going to merchants to boost sales i you know i thought about it and pulled out i'm going to be honest but um but yeah this is a really interesting one that is no sort of uh, small amount of money. Sarah, what's uh, what's going on here? So, I mean, Amazon's lending business has just sort of gone strength to strength here. They they did $1.5 in total between 2011 and 2015. And then they've done over a billion in the last 12 months. So, I mean, I, I can't do the maths in my head, but I'm impressed. They're not the only players who are working in this space. So PayPal has PayPal Working Credit, which is the same idea. So the point is that Amazon really only lends to businesses that sell through its platform. So it's already pre-approved them. 
So it's not, it's not a, you know, it's, it's not out there for everybody. Um, it does show that, that there is an appetite for it. It does show Amazon is pushing its financial services chops. I mean, the other thing that Amazon did this week was launch this um, Amazon Prime rewards program. So in the US, you can have an Amazon account. You might be able to over here, but I know the rewards program isn't over here. But you basically load money into it. It's like it's like a pre prepaid kind of box, holding box. And if you put money in from your debit card or directly from your bank account, you now get rewards. So they're trying to hold money. They've got credit cards, and their lending business is is going is 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 doing incredibly well. Um, as, as our resident sort of Amazon addict, then like <laughs> that, like all of that is like tingles. Quite frankly, I need, I need some of that in my life. When I saw that story, I, I immediately thought about. Obviously, that's in the US, isn't it? That, yeah. That, and it's, I think it's like 2% off as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's cashback. It's, it's cashback. It's, 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 it's almost free. <laughs> that thing that I want is now almost free. I, and it just made me think of like when PSD2 comes into effect of like, well, you could keep your Visa and your MasterCard, uh, you know, on record with us, but we'll give you 2% off if you just link us directly to your bank account. It just, it feels like... Like Sarah was saying, they are starting yeah. to make moves. I mean, and I, yummy, yummy data. Yes, please. <laughs> I've, got to be, I've got to be careful what I said, because last week I said that I didn't think that they were going to take off in the same way as um, Tencent and Alipay have. I, th- I still kind of think that they won't take off in the same way the Chinese giants have, but certainly not in that they're going to suddenly become my only financial services provider. Do you think that they should give some of those small authentic players pause for thought? You know, certainly in the alt lending space, if you're, if you're kind of up against... Um, you know, a company that you've not really heard of before and, you know, they're kind of digital, but you don't know much about them. Or Amazon says, we'll give you a loan. I don't think there's much of a, a choice there for a lot of these small businesses. So um, I'm very interested in what they do and I'm very interested in where it happens. Because at the moment, this is in the US. That's their home territory they can play. They can see how it works, how it doesn't work. We'll have a think about it. Oh, well, we'll, we'll take that one back because it didn't work. I want to know where they go next, and I want to see how. I want to see some more numbers. So this is good. I, I mean, more. <laughs> yeah, I thought about the obvious one was Cabbage and eBay. So mm. you know, they did the same in the US. Santander brought Cabbage over to the UK, but when yeah. I was looking for this story, they're, they're no longer accepting loans, which I didn't realize. So what's the happened there is that Cabbage is white labeled. So it's still doing, um, uh, it's, it's actually pivoted quite substantially. It's getting, it's got a huge new hub coming in Ireland. Um, and they're really focusing on white labeling their platform to mm. European banks. So they're still doing it, but you'll get a loan from like Santander. It'll just be a Santander loan. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Well, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on this one and definitely sign me up for those Amazon Prime rewards. <laughs> so uh, moving on, we have quite well, quite a bizarre one, this one, I'll be honest with you. So over on Finextra, we've got a what looks like a press release, really, but Fiserv to acquire Monetize for 70 million. Not quite a billion as the last one, so it doesn't sound quite as impressive, does it? But uh, Liz, what's going on here? Yeah, this is the the sad demise of, of Monetize, which was at one time considered to be the fintech darling of the industry, founded by Alistair Lukies. It was valued at $2 billion at one time. Wow. Um, yeah, there are, there are, I, I can speak about this because I never worked for them. So, you know, <laughs> I'll, just, um, I'll just step back from the microphone. <laughs> um, yeah, 70 million. It's, it's sad. This is, this is the demise of a fintech darling. I mean, I heard rumors that it was offered to Mises. Uh, they've recently been renamed after they merged with D&H to FinAstra. No Not relation to FinAstra. No connection. <laughs> They book your videos now for Cybos. Um, but yeah, so I'm not sure what Fiserv is going to do with it. I mean, Visa dropped monetized like a lead brick 
and they walked away from it. So um, this is just a sad story. But you know what? This this happens. This is this is. I've got a bit of a soft spot for monetizing. That yeah. you know they they were the first ones to bring app mobile apps banking yeah, to, to the they UK. Were, they, were they, the they, they did a smart yeah. thing. They looked at the state of all the internet banking platforms and thought we'll never be able to plug into those. Have we got anything that's consistent? Oh yes, the ATM network. A really smart idea to plug into the ATM, which was this decades-old infrastructure that had standards. And then they built an app on top of it, and NatWest were the first, I think, in the UK. And I know that at the time HBC followed slowly after. <laughs> and if my colleague John's, he was like, he holds on to this monetize app that no longer works, but he loves, he loves it. <laughs> so, I, yeah, they did a great thing, but. They flew too high and burned by yeah. the sun. I think, from my perspective, I I did work there for, you know, three years. Um, I think it's a cautionary tale, probably. I think that's actually there are lessons to be learned here, and I think that they're aware that there are lessons to be learned here. And I think, you know, um, it could have been a lot worse. Power. <clears throat> so, yes. Um, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> if this was a later story, we'd had more beer. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all I'm going to say for now. It's it's an interesting one though, like you know, a startup now selling for seventy million pounds, people would be like, Well done, you guys. But it's just like back to the it was worth two billion at one point. So they they've got four hundred employees as well, right? So four hundred employees generating That was about sixty seven, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so sixty seven a a year. You know, that's that's not a great deal that they're actually generating for a software company per employee, is it? Well, that's across the, the board as well. So they have offices in, in Istanbul. They have people in San Francisco. They have, I believe they still have, although I could be wrong here, the Create Arm, which was kind of the digital design uh, innovation agency arm. Um, so it, it is across a, a broad spectrum as well. It's not just their core business, which it, which was the, the, the FinKit product. Yeah. For, for Fiserv, I guess this gives them a... You know, a bit of a broader appeal, right? They're not just sort of sitting at the the base of the stack. I'm just wondering what they'll do with it, though. I mean, but I, I wonder if it's actually taking the products and services that they have and being able to, you know, really sort of customize them. You know, rather than using the the monetized technology, if they use the design house that they've got and you know go to their customers who want to see something rather than just mm. you know so something that sits people. in the back office, then yeah. it it might be sensible move, right? They've got partnerships as well, so they've been working quite hard to partner up with a load of. So the the product that they've been working on most recently is kind of like a PSD two platform, really, to so enables a bank to plug in to monetize once and then have access to APIs from. Um, a load of different fintechs to provide end services. So it's kind of a, a, an adapter, if you like. And so they do have a, a lot of relationships with fintechs, uh, a lot of whom are over at level 39. So, you know, again, there's that. If I serve as looking to like see where, what other services might be out there and what it can provide. Um, well, well, I'm playing some catch up on, you know, people like Temenos who have got a marketplace for integration of fintech. If that's their angle, then, you know, 70 million pounds from, from Fiserv's perspective actually might make sense, right? But um, yeah, good news for whoever owns a lot of that 70 million pounds that's hitting somebody's bank account. Bad news that it wasn't 2 billion. So um, good news, bad news, guys. Uh, Moving on, we have a story in the New York Times. This is Cash Faces a New Challenger from Zelly. What's Zelly? What the hell is well, Zelly? Well, actually, Zell, as in Gazelle. Ah. Thankfully, the, thankfully that, the New York that Times doesn't work at all. Then I'm the, sorry. The New York Times uh, clears that up through us, thankfully. But um, yeah, it's very exciting if you live in the US. It might seem a bit old world to us, but yeah, it's basically the banks have come together after six years and they finally launched their peer-to-peer payment application for the banks. Uh, Thirty banks have come together to build this beautiful. 
Only took them six years? Yeah, only six wow. years. <laughs> then and, and so, yeah, it, what they're now going to embed it inside their app. So very similar to PayM in this country. I was going to say, didn't that happen in like 2010 here? <laughs> and don't they have Venmo to well, stop yes. them needing to have this? So, or? so, so, let me just kind of finish. But yeah, they... Um, it's different because it allows you to send money with a phone number and an email address, which PayM doesn't allow. So that's okay. one big advantage. The other big advantage is uh, it says it's instant. So in the US, moving money is slow as anything. Mm. Whereas and and it's and Venmo is apparently can take up to a day as well. So this is what they're hoping will be their their USP. What is also interesting is that they are launching it now uh, inside all the banking applications, which is the same as PayM. But they are later in the year launching a standalone Zelle app, which is interesting, which is something that PayM never did in this country. Because I, I, I think we've talked about PayM many times, not favorably. It doesn't seem to have done much. It's kind of hidden away in banks' apps. I'm not sure of the usage of it. So this will be interesting to see if uh, in a if market you talk like to the US, banks, it's the most revolutionary payments app <laughs> ever created in the history but, of the UK. But you know, I, Venmo's you know 300 million people in the US versus whatever Venmo's user numbers are. Um, it could be a transformational change. I mean, again, we don't we don't live in the US, but it, yeah. it might feel old hat. But, but the, it's from the, so from the the US perspective, from from you know my colleagues who are using these services all the time, the the colleagues who are um, working at you know Business Insider um, who all have Venmo are kind of like meh. But the point is, it's got a bank brand on it. And we know that the older generations are now using bank apps and online banking, even not using the apps. So there's the potential there for a huge untapped older market. And as you say, in the UK, my mum will still very happily log on to online banking, transfer me some money, and it'll be in my account in two minutes. So she doesn't she doesn't need another service. But if you are in America and you are trying to send money to your kids or I don't know, all that kind of like all those kind of like instant transactions we take for granted. They, tr- they trust their bank. They know how to log on to their, their banking online portal. They don't have to think about another app or a smartphone. And, you know, I, I, can see, I can see it appealing there, especially if it's instant, as Aidan says, which is like the huge thing that I still can't get my head around that the Americans still take three days for a payment to go through. Um, the other thing is here as well, that it's like 86 million mobile banking customers like that instantly have access to this. Like, that's big. You don't need all of them to be using it, right, for that to work. I, so. I, guess, I guess, you know, while I was on my deathbed last week listening to you guys talk about Apple peer-to-peer payments, like, I guess in the context of, of that one, like, I sort of feel like my mum would more likely use iMessage than use a separate app to do a payments thing. No, I could, I could see my mother being, my mother uses online banking, but I would, I could see her very much being happy that it, it was branded with her bank yeah. on it. And even if it's not, a, and the point is, it's not a separate app as well. So you don't need a separate app, right? So if you if you already if you've got, if you've got your parents to the stage where they're using online banking or an app, then let's not like there are some people the out boat. there. Let's yeah. not add another one to I that. I think that's that's worth mentioning that um, they they've got a consistent UI as well across the banks. Okay. So banks that already kind of offered this feature. So I think it mentions Wells Fargo in the story. They've actually uh, redesigned their in-app experience of paying somebody. So it's similar. So it, you, you've got this consistency across the industry, and I think that's that's a very smart move. Um, but yeah, you've you've uh, the banks in the UK kind of just let, launched PayM, and then if you try and find anything about PayM on their websites today, it's it's just it's just it's buried. It's not. Whereas I think they they need to really make a 
a song and dance about this. Yeah. But I mean, they do have a USP, which is the instant payments. Like, that's literally it. Yeah, there's there 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 a, there a great quote here from um, Gareth Gaston of US Bank. People told us they really liked the reassurance of knowing the money was gone immediately as opposed to waiting for a check to clear. It was an interesting surprise. Oh, well, <laughs> to which everybody British in this room has just put their head in their hand. It is a very low bar, isn't it? Uh, and uh, continuing the American theme into the next story, we have something on Biz Journal. So this is Bank of America launched new high-tech financial centers around the U.S. Liz, how high-tech are these centers? I'm I'm the American here. Um, yeah, on behalf of your I've, brethren, I've, then... I've got two conflicting opinions about this story. Uh, these super ATMs, immersion, non-people it experience. extreme ATMs? In, in, extreme ATMs. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. Um, when I first read it, I thought, why? why? Why do you need to have a sort of pared-down people list branch super ATM experience. However, I think back to all the bullshit I talk about. Um, and <laughs> I really believe that this idea of being mobile has nothing to do with the device that you're holding in your hand. And it, it's about you being so I think that this is kind of a little first iteration of being able to get your bank or whatever services you want, where you're mobile. So you know, you probably uh, branches are getting smaller. Um, you can walk into these super ATM immersion experiences and, and uh, speak to someone on a TV uh, about complicated uh, financial products like, um, you know, applying for a mortgage, I guess. Um, so, yeah, so I think my first sneery opinion on this was why. And now I'm thinking, hmm... I, I, I kind of like it now. Yeah. Well, we, to go back to something we've talked about, I talked about on this podcast before, what I was sneery about, uh, I think it was Bank of Ohio doing a drive through ATM, if I remember correctly. I was drive They're all over America. Yeah. But um, I have to get out of my car to get to it. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're an average woman, I promise. <laughs> yes. But I think this is kind of taking it to the next stage. And the thing that's interesting to me about this is, so in the UK, we've got branches closing left, right and centre, and that's leaving a whole load of older, vulnerable people without access to banking services. Now, this could be a hell of a lot smaller, right? It doesn't need to be a huge branch. It could be a quarter of the size. So the rental space for that on a high street is going to be less. You can give all the services that you, you need in there. You can do ATMs, you can do check deposits, you can do... And if you need to speak to somebody over a, a video call to talk about a mortgage, you can. And there's, I kind of think I quite like the idea that, okay, Lloyd's or whoever closes 150 branches and opens 150 of these, they'll make those cost savings and all those people who live somewhere where there's no signal or elderly people who, you know, buses in remote areas of this country cost you seven pounds one way. So those people who want to go and do their banking, who don't have a pension to spend, if you can put something like this in not every village, but in enough villages i actually quite like the idea of kind of a there's a, there's a community service thing there and it'll be wonders for the bank's brands if they can bring some branches back to some of those small towns yeah. i mean i spend a lot of time in south wales as uh, so my family are and you know there are there are completely branchless towns from one to the next and the next to the next as i said to get between those towns it's seven pounds on a bus you've got people in there who don't have a lot of money who don't have wi-fi because if you don't have a lot of money you don't have wi-fi in your house so i i like the kind of I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah. I'm just hoping that they have some sort of a security person in there so it doesn't get, you know, peppered with... There is that. Crash. <laughs> we don't have those youths in there. <laughs> those, those silly youths. Well, I think it's, I don't know. It, you're also going to have to have an engineer working there pretty much all the time. It, it, I don't know. It, 
<clears throat> one of the things that made me think about was like interactive um, displays in museums that are always broken. Yeah. Kids' museums where they go in and you just think once you walk in there, there's no human being. It's, it mentions a digital mm. greeter. They are phenomenally bad experiences at the moment. So if you walk in there and all of a sudden you've got this broken robotic voice and you don't know what anything is and you just end up just using the ATM, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting on And they just launching just a few of them, right? Yes. Yeah, so they could see what happens. So I, having having done a couple of branch strategy pieces of work for, for clients in the past, the hardest thing you get trying to convince them is that the branch that they have as in the four walls and the building that they have is not the future of the branch you know a branch strategy is not about sort of new wood floors and sort of painting the walls a bit different and sort of putting in some fancy touch screens but sure, actually I've seen lots of strategies that just not, that, not, 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 lots of them have not from us i'm just going to point out but but i so that's why i kind of think this is actually quite a positive thing because like the branch is breaking out of the branch you know people still need those services but they need them packaged in a different way that's accessible to them that isn't in a massive marble building and a you know with the old vault doing nothing in the background and just taking up cost and space so you know i completely agree with you guys it's like the services are still relevant but actually how you deliver them to people is very much changing right well surely there's a halfway house as well surely you take your average bank branch you divide it in half you put a mortgage advisor and somebody who can help little old ladies with touch screens at the back and maybe a security guard and that's three staff or, you know, and then you have an engineer who tries... Surely there's a way of doing that. Like, if you think... But but I, uh, I think in a, in, a, no. in, a, in a world where, you know, one of your top things as a, you know, a, a bank CEO is to be sort of dramatically reducing your operating cost, getting rid of all of that incredibly expensive property, if you can actually get out the leases, is like a ma- like masterstroke in sort of cutting your costs. Then pick a, you know, if you can do drive-throughs, you can be, like, on the ring road. You don't have to be in the on the high street, do you? So... Um, I think the you know the dynamic of what the operating cost is can really really change. Maybe park and rides. Just had a thought. Just had Ooh. a business idea like Ooh. bank branches at park and rides. Nice. That is some low cost uh, <laughs> sort of real estate right there. Do you guys so. ever do the thing where you you put the you put all your checks in a like a vacuum seal and you stick it in the tube? Oh, genius! <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> We talking about Elon Musk yeah, so hyperlink when, so when now, you but just for cash. So when you got given a check, I'm just thinking like work, a national infrastructure you, of just you, you, sending You fill out the little form. You drive up in your car. You get the plastic tube. You put your paycheck and the form in the tube. You close it, and it goes. I remember this being in awesome. in in stores where they used to put the twenty pound notes in the back. Um, can I just can I just pick up one other thing here that we're talking about fancy ATMs? We were looking there's a and an, a piece in the Guardian about different types of like fancy smart ATMs with selfies and fingerprints and whatever. But there was one that I thought was really interesting, which is called a recirculating ATM. So if you are a small business, one of the biggest problems you have is that some poor normally waitress or kitchen porter or you know uh, shop server has at the end of the day to plod to the bank with lots and lots of money in their pockets to deposit it before the end of the day or before the day starts. I've been that person. Um, this enables you to take the notes and the coins. We're talking small business here. Take the notes and coins from your day's take, put them into the ATM, and then they are recirculated as the cash that is given back out of the ATM. Now, I know that there's lots of like problems with this, but the idea of that, you're serving a small business, you're giving people access to cash, which let's face it, they're still going to need at least for the interim, and you're saving costs on like restocking and whatever else. I think that's quite clever. I was quite impressed by that idea. Mm, it sounds like it's going to put those uh, sort of uh, extortionate uh, coin exchange things in Sainsbury's and whatnot out of business then, which is uh, probably another little benefit of that one as well. Moving on, we have a, another story in Finextra. This is Monzo may have to freeze some accounts. Boo-hoo. 
What's going on here, Aidan? You know, the anti-money laundering regulations uh, denote that you need to know who your customers are, which is a, you know... Sounds sensible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think basically what Monzo have said here is that um, they've signed up customers who may not have uh, given them enough information that satisfy these regulations. So they need to then get more identity details from their customers. Uh, they've said in a... a what well, I think is a really good blog post, and I'll explain why now uh, in a bit, but um, 20,000 customers are at risk of having their accounts frozen on the 26th of June um, if they effectively don't uh, give them some extra identity details such as a passport, snap, etc., etc. I think it's good in the way that Monzo have kind of gone about this and been public and open because this is a huge problem for the banking industry where it affects far more than 20,000 customers. But the fact that they're Telling customers and it's running out next week or the week after the 26th June is, is not so great. Uh, they said that they'll be sending messages out to customers via the app to get them to kind of reauthorize themselves. But yeah, I think it's having had some involvement in identity remediation projects in the past in my previous employer. Huge problem. Monzo have got the benefit that they can re-identify customers through the app. And I've done, I've done that process myself. It's a, it's a nice, slick process. Whereas the banks are having customers to kind of re-engage with them and some banks yeah, can't even can't even approve their identities with their they can't certify their documentation so it's a huge industry-wide problem monzo speaking about it i thought it was a really clear and concise blog post it, it but it yeah i think i think the thoughts oh, i mean so i know i know it's not just monzo that's having this problem i no, know no, no, i was no, at no. an event earlier this week and some, and you know a lot of others whatever you neo banks or those services were, were saying the problem i wasn't aware the banks had the problem because as far as i understood it so it's with the fourth the fourth AML directive, something European that's been around since 2015 and everybody's only thought, oh, we need to do something about that now. I, I wasn't where the banks are from, but it was kind of like the, the, the interesting thing is that and Monzo explains this, is that they have three levels of authentication. There's kind of a basic, a, a not so basic and a woohoo, you're good to go. The latter two, as far as I understand it, are pretty much only available to kind of EU citizens with an address and a passport. Now, that's fine for most people. It's just a little bit of extra hassle. You take a picture. But what I'm really interested in is that this is going to affect a lot of those guys who are trying to provide services to uh, refugees, immigrants. Now, their services work on the premise that you don't have to do all this. Their services work on the premise that they do not need a fixed address. They do not need a passport. They do not need a council tax bill or whatever it is. I don't know how they're going to serve all their customers. Because for Monzo, most of Monzo's customers, I imagine, will just go like, oh, this is annoying, but... I've got a passport or I've, I've got a proof of address. If you're one of those guys who's serving that market deliberately and specifically because they don't have those things, I don't know what you do. Like, I don't know what the solution is to that. Um, Shutting down accounts, unfortunately, by the looks of things. Well, yeah. Uh, that's, we, yeah, obviously, that's Monzo's probably opening terms and conditions is you, you do have to be a UK resident to open their account, whereas somebody like, let's say, Moniz, who that's yeah. their kind of reason for being is trying to get accounts open for people who've got less of an identity. This um, is, I, um, this is, uh, you can probably correct me, but um, the average for fraudulent accounts at the traditional banks is 8% of openings. I, so this is your friend of mine, Dave Birch. He, he ran these roundtables a long time ago. Um, and someone was talking at the time about um, the new, brand new high street bank on uh, the UK, first in 100 years, that could open up an account very quickly. And the number of percentage of fraudulent accounts in the beginning was way up into double figures. Um, so yeah, so there, there is there is that sort of danger. If, you're, if your selling point is you can open an account really quickly, yeah. 
and for the just going back to Sarah's point, for the big banks, you know, people who've opened accounts like twenty years ago before you needed a passport, probably me, me, you know, minimal proof of address. Have you ever changed your address? Have these I, accounts I, good? I couldn't it, open an account when I moved to this country twenty years ago. I could not open an account at any bank I went into for love nor money, and I had a full time job and a paycheck. And our f- financial director in New York had to call up a bank here and threaten to pull the business until they gave me an account. Wow. He liked you. You you were, you were important to him. She wanted to pay me. She wanted. To, I didn't yet. I didn't yet. Well, so I, I, I'm. It, some people are saying, "Ooh, Monzo have screwed up here. They're going to have to shut accounts." But well, they, they think we're honest. They screwed, about it. I don't think they screwed yeah. up. No, that's why I like yeah. them. I like I like that when something goes wrong with Monzo, I'm like, "Oh, damn, things not working." Ah, that's why it's not working. Got it right. The only Where thing I would tell them off for is 26th of June is not a long time. No, uh, you know. That a bit is more fair. notice. Uh, but I, I, I haven't heard from many. I mean, I haven't heard from anybody it, else. I think I tweeted yeah. exactly that. Is yeah. I don't think it, I don't a, think this reflects badly. It's a clear them. communication. Yeah. You go to like you say. You, you don't know that any banks have got this problem, but they have, and they're trying to solve it in various ways: writing letters, getting people to come to branches, or man. But they're not going to op- openly say we don't know how. Uh, we don't know if X million of our customers are actually real or still alive or whatever. So it's a, a huge problem across the industry. Uh, and Monzo have been public about it. Alive. <laughs> <laughs> In yeah, the he's... past six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> They've been on the conference schedule. They've been on the fintech conference schedule. be interesting to see um, how many get shut down, I guess. I'm sure, you know, in the... Um, sort of sense of transparency like Monzo usually is, they'll they'll probably tell us at some point in terms of how that change comes through. So wait and see what happens there. Uh, on that note, let's go and fill our drinks up and hear from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. And we're back for the second half. So first up in the FT, we have Deutsche Bank Wealth Arm targets Asia super rich. I don't know why I was going to screw that sentence up, but it really felt like I was going to. So, uh, Aidan, this is a sort of a weird story, right? It is a weird story. So they're hiring 100 client managers around the world to target the super rich in Asia. Uh, they're spending a massive $65 million to build out their digital capabilities, such as portfolio health checks, customized market news that uh, would reflect new demographics in business, which sounds very, very exciting. Uh, Fabrizio Campelli, Global Head of Wealth Management and Stater of the Obvious, said, "Uh, we have many clients who are asking to interact with us on a less physical basis. Um, (laughs) I've been been told that quite a few times. (laughs) 
so it's, it's not much to the story, but it fascinates me on a couple of levels. You know, obviously we're going to target the rich people because they've got more money. It feels like an obvious thing, but it just doesn't feel like they really know what they're doing or what they're going to build to to target these people. Oh, because Deutsche Bank has never been shown to to not maybe have thought something through before. Um, I think it's. A, I, I have this. I I really don't understand it because that's a lot of money, and they're talking about digital. And why they haven't mentioned the words robo and advisor baffles me, because high net worth individuals will use automated investment services if they save them money. They will. It, 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 you know, you you look at the likes of. You know, I'm not talking about you know the betterments and wealth fronts of this world. I'm talking about the vanguards of this world. I'm talking about you know the black rocks of this world. So. Okay, Asia makes sense. Yes, high net wealth individuals. Yes, makes sense. Why are we hiring a hundred people? Why aren't we building some kind of automated investment solution here, and then maybe hiring twenty client managers? Because if the investments are being done automatically and they're building online interaction portals, you only need those sort of client advisors to kind of pat them on the arm and go there. There, would you like another martini? You don't actually need them to be doing all that much, and that's the whole point of this technology. I'm lost. I'm baffled by it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm struggling also. It does seem like a kind of a an old-fashioned strategy to a sort of a new age problem, doesn't it? So, uh, like you say, it's probably not the first time that this is uh, this has happened, but it'll be you know super interesting, I guess, to see if the super rich are open to being targets for for Deutsche Bank. Eh? Who knows? I have no comment on this either. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, next up, we have a uh, sort of a interesting one from the New York Times. I guess the sort of everybody talked about Uberization for quite a while. And I think that term is probably changing the definition now, isn't it, in terms of what that actually means. But we've got Uber embraces major reforms as Travis, not going to pronounce that second name, steps away. What happens here? So this is um, a wonderful story about my favorite company that takes me home when I'm tired and tipsy, and they've installed a room called the Peace Room and installed mandatory hugs, which will just revolutionize their... No, sorry. I will continue. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, I shouldn't go off on a tangent. So yeah, so unless you've been living under a rock, um, Uber has had a major upheaval, which has been coming for a very long time. So back in February, Susan Fowler, one of the uh, uh, engineers at Uber, wrote a, a long blog really outlining a lot of the macho sexist practices uh, that went on at Uber, um, based, based on some of their culture pillars, which were always be hustling and uh, what was it? Principled confrontation. Um, and there was what is, a... What does that mean? don't know. So supposedly there was a, a war room that you could frost over and there was, uh, so Eric Holder, former attorney general of the U.S., did a, uh, a long report on the company. And now uh, the, I think this is the world's most valued private company. Uh, now has no CEO, no CTO, no COO right at the moment. Wow. Um, some, some wag tweeted this week that yeah. they, are, they are now the closest they've ever been to a self self-driving no, company so. which was <laughs> exactly. very funny is, yeah. is it accurate I may have I may have misunderstood something I've read here but is it accurate to say that they're now going to be led by committee isn't there something like 14 advisors no I, well, I've, I don't know there, like, there are a lot of lessons with this with this story and some of them I think are not going to be good lessons for the industry and one is 
You know, one of the recommendations of the Holder Report was that they should monitor the use of non-prescription controlled substances while at work. And so, yeah, basically people were doing drugs in the office. Really? Yeah. And, wow. and the alcohol, you know, so, and you know, this is kind of a startup well, we that... We can't judge on the alcohol front. <laughs> I know, I know, that's true, there, but... that's true. Um, it's but, up to five. But it's six o'clock, it's fine. <laughs> but there is this sort of stereotype of the young Silicon Valley startup, very bro culture, very frat boy and they drink um you know and maybe this is the way travis is as a person but the company grew and expanded to such an extent that culture seemed to have permeated you know when you when it's four guys drinking beer and telling bad jokes in a in their war room um and then all of a sudden they're a huge you know 100 I was, I was stunned that they have 14,000 employees wow. yeah it's a lot of people so you you've got to you know when when your company grows that immature culture also what i thought interesting this not the new york times article but the times magazine article called 40 year old travis rather old for a silicon valley ceo and i thought you bastards um the the thing that makes me really really nervous about this story and what happened at uber is you can pick apart all the salacious gossip and all the the you know the, the the bad stories which probably are not unique to just uber but then i think a lot of people in Silicon Valley will say, but look at how successful they were. Yeah. This and is, it's because of that culture. I have I have a fear. This could go one of two ways, right? It could be like they bring in a new CEO, they're like, we're cutting all of that out, we're going to do it all properly, we're going to play by the rules. Or it could be, we're going to stop hiring women and people who may be a whistleblowers. You know, or we, put in a fucking peace room. I'm sorry, I really... <laughs> is that, was that real? Because <laughs> no, I didn't know... So yeah, they so yeah, transformed the name of the war room to the peace room. They changed it to a peace room. I mean, I... Bullshit. I haven't. So this is like <laughs> I'm going to put it out there that I really st- I stopped using Uber about eighteen months ago, about two years ago, because this is not. This has been a long time coming, right? Anybody who's got kind of half an eye on it has, has seen this coming, and I can't remember. Emil is Emil Michael or ML Michael, who um, was the CTO or COO who's just left. Um, he. He has done some diabolical things. So he rang up a female journalist who had threatened to expose them and threatened her children over the telephone. He found um, medical records of a woman in India who had yes, been raped by her driver awful. and then threatened to use them against her. Like, I have no time for that. I have no truck for that. And I'm done with that. But there are an awful lot of people out there who will be going, I'm drunk and I'm tired and it will take me home really quick. Um, so... I think it's diabolical. I'm sorry, I'm ashamed. <laughs> no, no, but no, but that's my point. Is that you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be ashamed. The company mm. shouldn't exist or be allowed to do that. That's what makes me angry. Like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like a. We'll call it the peace room, and you can all sit around and meditate. No, no but that makes me mad as well because <laughs> that's so patronizing. I just, I yeah, I mean, I, I'm, mm. I'm, I was done with Uber very quickly, but I think a lot of consumers won't be. They'll yeah. continue to be successful. The consumers. Will I mean, still at, get the at, at the big reveal where Travis is taking a, a leave of absence, and his mother uh, did pass away. Um, which is one of the reasons that he's saying he's taking a leave of absence. Adriana Huffington is on the board, then asked everyone in the room to hug each other. And I just... Also, for a company who's got a problem with, like, sexist behavior... Yes, yes, don't touch me. Don't, don't come near me. <laughs> in the middle of, you know, explain the report, look into sexism, they did that, and then the board member, who's mm-hmm. no longer a board member, uh, Ariana Huffington, um, she said, you know, once you have one woman on the board, then there's a good chance you'll get a second woman on the board. And he said something along the lines of, once you've got a woman on the board, then what you're going to get is a lot more talking. And this was in the announcement about sexism, which is just just amazed. Just one of the great fuck-ups. As, as there, isn't, there isn't video with this particular podcast. Liz has just turned a lovely... <laughs> 
lovely shade of red. Um, There's a lot of hand gestures from one just, side of this table but just right now. Bringing it back to banking, obviously there must be a million shit blog posts about the Uber of banking. But I'm, I'm waiting and for it's... the I'm waiting for the one that says, "But these guys became a hundred billion dollar company because." Of this well, type of culture. Well, and, and uh, you have to say, not wanting to defend this in any way, shape, or form, and, and you are on the other side of the table, so I feel reasonably safe at this point. <laughs> there are um, full cans of coke between you. Yeah, like, they do. They are quite heavy. Um, but um, but the, you know the sales behaviour is inherently in most of the organisations that are in that very masculine, isn't it? It's very much a that kind of a, you know everybody's like trying to be number one and like smash it out of the park and it is that kind of go out and get like crazy pissed and come in in the morning and like sell some crazy stuff type thing so you know I, I can see why that isn't gonna go away but, but it's also not just that it's because um you know you know like the, the 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 trite statement you know we don't employ assholes or we don't invest in assholes you know i worked for a company in the, in the 90s in new york where there was a guy in the office that was constantly commenting on all the women's bodies in the office i mean i, I put um uh toothpicks in his chair one day i just had enough he <laughs> that's was like it was awful. that's a great idea and I'm just when that. when he finally left of his own accord to join another another to magazine, go to hospital with <laughs> oh, toothpick in his butt. um and and all the other women in the office were like oh, fucking this guy's gone the editor-in-chief said i'm really sorry i couldn't fire him because he was producing such good work i think the other point is as well this is not like that exactly what you've just said this is not this is not frat Silicon Valley culture exclusively. I have been into some large financial establishments in this in this city where there are people who who do that. There are people who come in in the morning having not been home, having not changed, and you know the drinking is one thing. But I I have been on the other end of comments in some of these establishments, and I'm like, what? How can you? Say that, and then it's because oh, they've been here a long time, or you know, or on the other hand, don't take it so seriously. Yeah. It's a joke, and I'm like, if we can have we can have a go at Uber for this, but we can also look at like there are some there is a culture potentially problem in a lot of big organisations um, globally. So. We, we've, we, we've ranted quite successfully there. Yes. I think we've got uh, our points yeah. across quite <laughs> and, I, and I think, like I said, I don't think that's just an Uber problem. That's like a no. generational kind of issue. Although my my point is it's not generational. My point is that it's, it, it, historically, or like in those big financial institutions, it's like, oh, it's like the, the Prince Philip. He's old. He doesn't know better. Like It's like your granddad makes a racist comment, but everybody lets your granddad do it because he's old. Prince Philip can do anything. Okay? <laughs> okay. Like, don't, right. don't start on Prince okay. Philip. All right, I'll back away from Prince Philip. But then, but, then, but then the point is that we say that's okay, and then we say, oh, but they don't know any better because they're frat boys. I'm like, well, that's three different generations of men. So you're just saying it's okay for men? I have a, fr <laughs> a friend at a bank who went to Consensus and she said she had her bum pinched and slapped constantly there. And I'm thinking, like, why would any this human year. This, Th year this year think that was an – and she told more stories as well. Uh, why would anyone think that's that's something that you can do? Bizarre, very, 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 very bizarre, and very, very sort of alarming behaviour. Do we do we think this is the sort of beginning of the end for Uber generally, or do we feel that the sort of storm will be weathered and more frat boys will be appointed? And I don't think until a regulator puts their foot down and says they got to stop doing, or they do something like tru truly illegal as opposed to like you know sexual harassment. Um, you know that they'll be that it will affect them. I I. Unfortunately, I don't think the sexism scandal is what's going to bring them down. I think there's a couple of other big things. Is like one is that is yeah. is the Google AI case right. is we're hearing we've heard some rumours that that is like really really huge mm -hmm. and that could be game over because a lot of their business model is 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 based on self driving cars 
because self-driving cars don't have employees. Well, they have got that at the moment. Well, Uber doesn't have employees exactly, either. Exactly, <laughs> and that's number two. That's yeah. the other thing, thing that's going to bring Uber down is as uh, you know, regulations change, and we're starting to see them in this country, mm. that Uber drivers are employees, and that changes a hell of a lot. So they're currently burning through a lot of VC cash, but I think that's what's ultimately going to kill them. Well, they're only two floors down in this building, so let's go and knock on the door and ask in a couple of hours. So uh, we'll uh, we'll report back next week. Or Mo- not, depending on how uh, it goes. Absence of a story next week, you know what happened. Um, so moving on, we have, and I have to say, the Register just write amazing titles. No, so this is Tata Security, which I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure the American listeners would really be able to kind of get that as a as a particular. No, no, they, they get with that. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But almost like a sort of Hannibal Lecter style Tata, right? Is that where we're going? Um, so this is bungling Tata devs leak bank code on public GitHub repos. What the hell happened here, Aiden? So I love an open banking story. Mm. Uh, this is not open banking per se and how you would normally do it. But uh, basically, yeah, uh, a security researcher found an open GitHub repo from Tata on the web and they've been working on a project that was across six Canadian banks found this repo a uh, repo is a repository on uh, github it's where you basically store a load of programming code and documents and there was all kinds of things there basically detailing the project that they'd be doing which was across six banks which is basically all the banks in Canada he then told the Canadian banks I found this and they did nothing they were like yeah he then went and told some U.S. banks that it was there because I think the project was to do with uh, something cross-border and they were a little more uh, worried about it. So, yeah, it's it's uh, a great screw-up by a certain consultancy to put things public. I do have one take on this because I'm, I'm fascinated by this anyway and just that, you know, bank code in itself is, you know, we talk about legacy and et cetera. And I, I, I'd like to see more of it open and on GitHub and being uh, looked at by people because it might get better. But I'm not sure what this this was that kind of strategy. There there are also, I mean, this is this is my, my comment. I've written some notes and it just says, oof. Um, <laughs> That'll do. There's some, some in-depth analysis <laughs> yeah, right on this for, show. I think, I, I'm, for a paid analysis, um, <laughs> see, see, see the blog. Um, no, I, I mean, it, there's a couple of things here. British banks have been told this too, by the way. This is not like this is this is a major screw up on the point of the consultancy, and you know they they're going to struggle there. But from a bank's perspective, there's two things here. One, British banks have been told repeatedly that their mobile apps can be hacked by people who who are kind of on side, and they've ignored them. And the other thing is that mobile banks bank apps can be hacked. <laughs> like that, that's kind of like okay, you're just telling us it's a huge security flaw, and it's not just because of this, as far as I understand it, like the, the code exposed flaws that were already there that could be used. And my, my point on this is that banks just can't be lax about their apps. They can't just assume because everybody, all consumers know about pins and, you know, fingerprint access, it's okay. It, it is still a problem. It's not just Canada and it's, it's you know, British banks as well. And they need to get their act together. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like, so Tata are probably in deep, shit here i'll be honest with you from a contractual perspective having exposed all of these things but um there's probably a lot worse things to be sort of doing than than this one so uh be interesting to see what type of fine they get it'd be interesting to see if anybody can actually work it out what are these systems actually do really (laughs) i would would pay for that (laughs) tell me how these these systems fit together and what you're trying to do can you tell us how to decommission these systems that we've (laughs) actually just spent millions building Indeed. Uh, moving on, we have on FN London, which is a new one to me, a e 
Emil Hoekse catches out top brass at City and Goldman. So this is somebody up to the same old tricks, eh, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, this is just the latest victims of this guy. Um, so he's a guy, he's a British guy based in Manchester, UK, who's basically been creating fake email addresses, um, not particularly sophisticated ones, um, and contacting prominent people in financial services, uh, pretending to be somebody they know, nine times out of ten, their boss, um, and asking them questions that could prove awkward should they answer them in an honest and accurate manner. It's kind of like, kind of like the chic. The tabloids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the list of the list. Of, right. So I have, I have thoughts about this. The list of names is spectacular. So the, the three this week were Citigroup CEO Michael Corbett, the consumer banking chief Stephen uh, Bird, and Goldman Sachs chief CEO Lloyd Bank Fien. Blank fine, blank fine. They're the latest in a long line of pretty important people who've been hit by this. So that the list also includes the Bank of England governor, Mark, Mark Garney, and Barclays CEO, Jez Staley. So this is like a long, prominent list. My theory on this is that they're looking at their email on their phone. They get hundreds of them. They're like, oh, God, that's an important one, must respond. But the time they get the second one back, I think they're playing along. If you look at Mark Carney's answers, I think he's like, I know what's going on. Do you on. think Lloyd Blankfeld looks at his own email well yeah, that's my other point is don't think you just have... go through a PA or, that... or several PAs <laughs> is it that or is it that they see oh my god this is my boss so I must answer it but I mean everybody uses email like you know literally I reckon you know all CEOs all bank CEOs do their own email these days they have some people kind of prioritizing and filtering stuff but but definitely they respond to their own thing I, I don't know if you kind of read through the the track of this one but it was hilarious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at, at the point where, so they were initially reasonably suspicious of, of kind of what was, was sort of happening here, saying, you know, you can never be too careful, Mike. Hope this really is our chairman, lols. Um, and then actually it starts getting down to, oh, yes, I had noticed that system when they started talking about the precautions that, that they're putting in place. It's the North Koreans and Russians that you really need to watch for in this day and age. This is hilarious. For me, it's like a sort of a behind the scenes that actually these guys have a personality. And this that's is funny. And that's, yeah. it's what's so interesting is that you, 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 you just don't get to see these people speak as human beings. It's like politicians. You just don't get to see them speak in real life. So A, you're trying, you might be trying to catch them out and yeah. say there's something horrific. But it's also just interesting when they're saying something kind of banal. You, that they are human beings. Not, uh, let, let, me, let me just finish the sentence here. He, he claims hackers. But in this instance, I'd say it was the large scotch he had before. Before leaving the golf club <laughs> isn't it isn't it wonderful that times have moved on Stephen Bird replies to this one ha ha I'd blame Putin which I feel <laughs> I feel he wins that which whole battle so less controversial yeah. and to link back to our earlier comment about culture the one who I I, I was really I really liked was um was Mark Carney when they got into this debate and the hacker was trying to get him to talk about to paraphrase in polite language um ladies in bars and you know types of ladies in bars and uh, Mark Carney replied, not appropriate, shut it down. And I was like, I like him now. So talking about, you know, getting a bit of their character. I was dreamy like, well, Mark what? Carney, stay dreamy. Yeah, he's a gentleman. <laughs> what could you say? At that point, the, the hacker shouldn't have outed it. And it was just like Mark Carney would have walked around thinking that guy's like a sexist bastard. For me. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? It's like how to turn the person yeah. against the whole organization, you know, so... Anyway, that wasn't the funny one to end on. <laughs> We've had a real, despite <laughs> the fact that a real series of fail stories yeah, to lead to this joyous end. Indeed, I, you know, I feel I'm bringing you down by being back, if nothing else. But uh, the last story we have is on the Verge, and I always do love what, reading the Verge. This is a cryptocurrency for weed is sending Dennis Rodman back to North Korea. Popcoin. Brilliant. Awesome. <laughs> the, I, just, just, and that's it. End of yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah. Just. 
the best title of any you, article can ever. Can you explain who Dennis Rodman is to our regular banking listeners who may not be basketball fans? So Dennis Rodman was a amazing uh, power forward in the 90s. Dated Madonna. He did, yeah. Very, very famously dated Madonna. So he used to play for the Detroit Pistons at his height, but then joined the Chicago Bulls and played amazingly. He was like that whole renaissance of when Michael Jordan came David's back from David's a basketball fan. So, Aiden and I are sitting here going, looking at David and going, uh-huh. He, Amazing Power basketball forward. player, mostly famous for wearing lots of dresses and dating Madonna. I'll be honest with you, but um, but yeah, this has a uh, pr- pretty much yeah. yeah. Um, she had the trousers, he had the dresses. But this is a really interesting story that Potcoin is basically sending him back to North Korea to hang out with his uh, best matey over there, the uh, Kim Jong Un, which is quite bizarre. So there was lots of sort of undertones of this one that he's off there to do some sort of amazing kind of you know big move here and they were sort of drawing lots of lattles here about his appreciation and endorsement for obviously the right honourable President Trump Don't say his name Sorry, (laughs) Voldemort. Um, But actually, it sort of feels like this is kind of one of those ones that I'm just fascinated by this whole thing. The fact that they would send him somewhere. We now live in an age where anything is nothing matters anymore. I think that someone in the White House, he's a spy. This is what's going to happen. This is real. This is this is something that that they have put him on a plane with a microchip in a piercing. Oh, they wouldn't even know. <laughs> exactly. Trust me, anything is possible. I, I just feel like this is like the interview too. You know, the movie yes. with Seth. Yes. <laughs> so yes. it just sort of feels like that has to be the conclusion to this whole thing is like the, the follow up to that movie is a documentary with Dennis Rodman. And like, this is like the auditions for it. But um, I'm intrigued if it's like a new strategy for initial coin offerings. You know, we we, we, we raise them to say, can we send some sort of 90s celebrity to solve world peace? You've got Steven Seagal, who's best mates with Putin. You've got Dennis Rodman, who's best mates with Kim Jong-il. I'm not sure... Who else we can send to solve world problems? Any other problem leaders we need to send random people? Is it like a problem that most of these sort of places where they've got these dictators have only watched 90s television? (laughs) Maybe. And actually, so, you know, like in 10 years from now, we're going to be spending like the, you know, Joey Essex out there or something like that. You know, like it's kind of like they slowly catch up with the trend. Can you explain that one to US listeners in any way, shape, or form? I don't feel I should. I don't want to sort of bring you down on that I'm thinking more Chuck Norris coins. He's like like the situation. Indeed, exactly. I can do, I'm here here to translate. Indeed, and we appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the news for this week. You can catch all of the links to the news stories that we've talked through in this week's show notes. But before we wrap up, big shout out goes out to Danny Matthews for a really awesome promo that you did on Twitter and Instagram for Fintech Insider. Super duper appreciate that tremendous work so that's what we have for you this week if you like what you've heard subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on itunes it's how we know you like what we're doing that's it for now thanks